Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Motley Fool's Industry Focus Financials Edition. Today, we're talking about everyone's favorite topic, bank earnings. So, revenue declined in most banks. Um, do, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, this was a quarter, and we had gone, we came into this quarter knowing that it was going to be a difficult one for the banks for two reasons in particular. The first was that trading revenues were down at a lot of the big banks, and that was as a result of the market volatility um, surrounding kind of the concerns about China's growth, which I think just this morning we saw some somewhat disappointing figures. It looks like they grew only 6.9% in their latest period um, relative to like the plus 10% uh, uh, rates that we were used to year, a couple of years ago. Um, but the second reason was that you know interest rates are still low, and when you have banks that earn a lot of money from um, owning interest-earning assets, low interest rates is gonna is gonna take a big impact uh, or have a big impact on your revenue. And so for those those two reasons, we saw revenue fall at virtually all of the big banks um, in the United States last quarter. Absolutely. Um, something to keep in mind if you're listening. Most banks uh, have loans making up to 50% of their, their uh, asset-making portfolio. So when interest rates are as low as they are, it just they just don't make as much money. Um, and it's, it's kind of a catch-22 for banks because people complain when rates are too high, and then people complain when rate, the banks complain when rates are too low. But, yeah, that's exactly right. You know what's interesting about this, too, is that you know, the traditional business model of banks was that you know, what they wanted was a, a really low short-term interest rate and then a really high long-term interest rate. But all of that changed um, during the high inflation period of the late 70s and early 80s. And now banks, what, they, what they're looking for are just higher short-term rates because they index all of their commercial loans off of those low short-term rates. So the higher the short-term rates, the more interest they earn, the more interest they earn, to your point, because they make up about half um, the interest that banks earn from their asset portfolios makes up about half of their total revenue, that will increase as well as, as short-term rates increase. Absolutely. Um, so looking at, at the, the big four banks, uh, so that's uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and Goldman Sachs, uh, out of all of those, one of them had an okay quarter. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, truth be told, um, a, a couple of them had a pretty decent quarter. It's just the, the comparisons were difficult. But the, the bank that had a really good quarter was Wells Fargo. And Wells Fargo, so just to give you some statistics, J.P. Morgan Chase, which is just a, phen- a phenomenally run bank, its revenue fell on a year-over-year basis by 6.9%. So that, that's, that's a pretty substantial decline in revenue. Where, and Bank of America's fell 2.5%, Citigroup, so about 5%. Wells Fargo's, however, grew by 3%. So you're looking at that thinking like, wow, how in the world did Wells Fargo make that happen? Um, let, me, let me kind of dig into kind of the explanation for, for exactly why that happened. And, and that's this. Look, you know, Wells Fargo is a traditional bank, so it actually relies on its asset portfolio and therefore interest rates more than a, Wells Fargo, uh, more than a J.P. Morgan Chase, a Bank of America, or Citigroup, which all have substantial Wall Street operations to kind of counterbalance their traditional banking operations. But what Wells Fargo is able to do is because it's still in such a strong competitive position relative to its competitors coming out of the financial crisis, it's still on an aggressive growth kick. Whereas Bank of America and Citigroup, not only are they not growing, but they're still kind of in that kind of that receding period where they're just trying to get rid of bad assets on their balance sheets. But Wells Fargo, on a year-over-year basis, now get this. It grew its interest-earning assets by 123 billion dollars worth, and if you just to put that into context, 
That is a, roughly the size of the 12th largest bank in the United States of America. And that's just the, the one-year growth in Wells Fargo's assets. So because even though that it's earning less on each asset that it holds in its portfolio, and that's because, because it has so many more, it's still earning more revenue from it. Right. And it's, it's earning less, just to reiterate for our listeners, because of the low interest rate environment that we're in right now. But like uh, Maxfield said, because they own so many more, they're still making more in bulk. That's exactly right. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about uh, J.P. Morgan and um, those other banks that are that do rely a little bit more on on trades. So J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, if you're just looking at those top line changes in its revenue, you would say like, wow, this bank had a horrible quarter. Its revenue fell by any other bank. And I, I think the exception was Goldman Sachs. And the reason was that again, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase kind of stands at the intersection of global finance, right? Where it, it has these enormous Wall Street operations and it's serving as a market maker for companies that are looking to buy and sell whatever type of you know, large institutional security that you're talking about. So when fears of China came out, what happened was there's a lot of volatility in the credit markets. And when you have a lot of volatility in the credit markets, investors in them will back up to kind of stay out of the mix. And when they back up, that volume decreases that that JP Morgan Chase as serving as a market maker would otherwise kind of be administering. So because that volume decreases and therefore its commissions decrease, it's going to see a, a large drop. And that's exactly what well, the JP Morgan Chase saw. However, what's important to keep in mind with the JP Morgan Chase is that even a quote unquote bad quarter for this bank is it's still an excellent bank. I think it earned something like 15% on its equity. It returns something on an annualized basis, returns something like 15% on its equity. And to put that into context, typically what you want to see from a bank is that it is exceeding its cost of capital. If it's exceeding its cost of capital and its profitability, that means it is creating value for its shareholders. Whereas if it's under its cost of capital, its return on equity is under its cost of capital, that means it is destroying um, it's just destroying value for its shareholders. And, and JP, JP Morgan, Morgan Chase absolutely estimates, did this 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 quarter did exceed its cost of capital by about four percent. That's exactly right. JP Morgan Chase estimates cost of capital eleven percent. So the fact that it's exceeding it, and a lot of other banks right now are not only are not exceeding it, but they're underperforming it by by a large margin. So even in a bad quarter, and this is important for JP Morgan Chase's investors, keep in mind. Even in a bad quarter, you're still looking at an extremely profitable bank. And I think it's something for people to remember that when you look at earnings, it's just how the company is doing at this split instant in time. It's not really looking at how what the company's like super long term prospects are. Of course, like if they have like a really terrible quarter and they go bankrupt, then you know, that's it. <laughs> but um, in general, for really great institutions, institutions like J.P. Morgan. Um, that you're investing in for the long term, you, you kind of have to put everything into context. Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, you could, as a, an individual investor, you could totally ignore quarterly results, right? I mean, we talk about them because it's our job to inform investors what's going on. But if you're invested in a great company, a Wells Fargo, a JP Morgan Chase, look, you could literally go a decade without looking at their quarterly results. And that's gonna, it's probably, quite frankly, is going to be a better thing for you to do because it won't you know, encourage you to buy or sell anything really quickly. Um, so yeah, so to, to Gabby's point, it, it's a really good thing to keep in mind that while quarterly results, um, you know, provide kind of a window into the latest uh, performance of whatever company you're invested in, that doesn't 
you shouldn't use that as a sole reflection on the, on the, on the value or the quality of that company. Absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind is that one of the things that goes hand in hand with earnings season is analyst expectations. Um, and sometimes companies beat analyst expectations, sometimes they, they, they don't. Um, and sometimes people react to that news um, without really thinking about how the company has done in a larger, in the larger picture. Yeah, I mean, and think about it, right? If you just read your your typical earnings release, right, written by whoever it is, you know, whatever publication it is, almost all, almost invariably at the beginning, the, the, you know, it, oftentimes even in the title, they talk about how banks or you know whatever company it is, you know, beat expectations or missed expectations or or what what all that what whatever it is. And what they're referring to is, you know, during as a quarter goes along, the analysts that follow specific companies come out with profit targets for that company that they're looking for when that company reports earnings and is generally expressed in earnings per share. Well, if a bank's, if all the analysts come out with, say, overly optimistic results and a bank misses it or uh, any, any other type of company misses it, typically what you'll see is a, a relatively sharp decline in its share price upon, uh, upon the release of, that, of the earnings release or the publication of the earnings release. Which can even well, the, be advantageous for long-term investors because that's a great time to buy if there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the company. That's exactly right. And, and the thing to keep in mind is that, like, these are just analysts, just like me or you or anybody else. You're really just trying to make an educated guess about what a company is going to earn. You're not actually like it's difficult to understand, but you don't have really an, any type of you know authority over the matter. You may know more about it as an analyst, but you don't have any authority over the matter. So it's not so much that a bank or a company misses or beats expectations. It's that rather the expectations either miss or beat with the reality. So it's it's kind of reversed to what it to to, to how we're 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 inclined to think about it. Exactly. So long story short, for our listeners out there, when you go to evaluate a company, sure, look at the earnings reports, the 10Ks, the 10Qs. But when you think about how they're doing, look at it in the long term. Compare them against how they've been doing historically. Look at the metrics for the company and. Maybe take analyst opinions into account, but really you need to formulate your own thoughts on the on the matter. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, what you're looking for is a company that can be more profitable than the other companies in its industry over a sustainable amount of time. That's what it's all about. That's how you pick a winning investment over years. And analyst expectations have nothing to do with that. Absolutely. Um, so we, we do have time to cover one more topic today. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about Bank of America? Yeah, well, as, as listeners may know and people who, who read my, my writing knows, I, I follow Bank of America uh, pretty closely and write quite a, quite a bit about them. Um, and so what's, what was amazing, what I found so interesting from this quarter, and it was a point that CEO and Chairman Brian Moynihan really stressed on the quarterly conference call, was the fact that, look, you know, did Bank of America have just an incredible quarter? No, it earned, I think its return on equity for the quarter was 0.82%. When you want a bank to be 1% or higher on its return on its return on assets. So it didn't have a great quarter, you know, looking at it on a, as a snapshot. However, if you couple it up with the three previous quarters, so that, that'll build out a full year, but it's actually you know, straddling 2014, 2015. It was the first time since the financial crisis that Bank of America generated a solid profit for four quarters in a row. So, the, and this, you know, this kind of builds on what we talked about uh, last quarter when Bank of America reported. 
it looks to me like Bank of America has really turned the corner finally and put the majority of those liabilities that were weighing on its earnings that relate back to the financial crisis is put those in the rearview mirror. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, tomorrow Bank of America is going to be generating 1.5% return on assets. But what it does mean is that you're probably going to see consistent profitability for the most part going forward. And those profitability metrics are probably relatively consistently going to edge up. And that is a really good thing for shareholders in Bank of America and for prospective investors because it still trades for a substantial discounted book value. Absolutely. And this is also a really good sign for future economic growth for the entire country. Yeah, that is, that's a really good point. You know, when you think about what dictates economic growth, it, it's a function of three things. This is what economists think anyways. It's a function of labor, capital, and productivity. If you increase any one of those holding all else equal, you're going to increase your economic growth. Well, banks are so important because what they do is they increase capital. They don't actually like create capital, but what they do is they aggregate the, the savings of you know, the millions of Americans spread out in the country, around the country who put a you know, little bit of money into their savings account. Then banks put all that together, and then they lend it out for people who want to buy houses, which pushes economic growth, for corporations who want to make uh, business investments, pushing economic growth. So all of these things. So banks, they really stand at the narrows, if you will, in terms of economic growth. And when you have Bank of America, which is your largest consumer bank in the country, still ailing from the financial crisis and thereby not able to grow its loan portfolio, say, as quickly as it may want to, that's really going to impact your economic growth. So, so even just more generally than bank earnings, Bank of America and Citigroup's recovery is a very, very positive and important thing for the United States economy. Absolutely. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us. I hope you liked this week's episode. Um, write to us at industryfocus at fool.com to let us know what you think or to tell us a joke about banks because banks could definitely stand to be funnier. Next week, we'll be talking about competitive advantages. Get excited. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, everyone, and have a great week. 